our program for our speaker tonight. The speaker says Corky has from Cincinnati, and my understanding that Corky has a back problem and has possible back surgery this week. This gentleman has uh, consented to replace him on very short notice. Let's give a big Jackson Mill welcome to Jim Kay from Cincinnati. My name is Jim. I am an alcoholic. And I'm real grateful and happy to be one. The first time I heard that from a speaker, I thought, that guy is nuts. I was soon to find out over the next couple of years that he wasn't nuts. I was. I guess all I've got to tell you is my story, how it was, how I got here, and how it is today. I was... uh, My sobriety date is April 1st, by the way. I enjoyed a... That was 1977, and it's April 1st because I quit sometime in March, but I'm not sure when. <laughs> I was I was born just like everybody else, and and uh, I was raised in a, in an average American alcoholic family. We we had a lot of fun, and it was a loving alcoholic family. There wasn't too much fighting. Uh, and parents took pretty good, pretty good care of us kids. We knew we were loved. But in spite of this, I didn't feel like I belonged. I spent a lot of my life being a stranger in a parade in a world I never made. I felt like the guy on the outside looking in, and all those kids are having fun, and I'm not. I was a sucker for alcoholism. I was born an alcoholic because from my first drink, I fell in love with booze. I was 13 years old, and the first time I got a got enough beer down me, we'd gone up a holler to shovel some road fill for a friend of mine, and his uncle worked over at Armco and left a half a keg of beer at the top of the hill, and we were shoveling the road fill, and his dad would take the truck down to holler, and Bill said, hey, meat left some beer up there, let's go try it. So he and I went up up the hill and took a couple of quick beers on a on a May hot May day and boy it tingled all the way down to my toes. It was just wonderful. I could I I <laughs> I knew I belonged. I it was just great. And I spent that summer uh, getting drunk on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. Because I had a paper route then, and I made, I think it was eight bucks a week, and spent every cent of it for, for blats. And, uh, down in Lawrence County, Ohio, you could, you could get it if you could get your money on the bar. But, you know, my parents knew I drank, but that was okay because they drank, uh, and so we just went on. I got through high school, thank God. They shipped me away to school. I was a smart kid. And uh, got a scholarship to a place up in Cleveland, so they sent me away to a prep school for high school. And they don't serve liquor in those places, but in spite of that, my second year up there, I had the nickname of drunk. We had to we had to wait tables your second year, and you're in the kitchen, and the and the good brothers, uh, the same guys that run Notre Dame, ran this school, and uh, 
every time I'd go by the uh, the freezer in the basement or the big chiller, I'd test that lock. And most of the time it was locked, but every once in a while that thing would just swing open and I could slip a six-pack out of there and up into the window well without even missing a beat. I'd be upstairs again with my tray serving tables and go back later and get that beer. I love that stuff. I had a lot of fun with alcohol. It uh, it did things for me that I couldn't do for myself. It made me dance better. It made me at ease with girls. It it just made me a lot a lot better person. I thought pimples fell off. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> well, you know, I got I got through high school. Thank God for that. Every summer I do a lot of drinking and, and raising hell with the guys at home. But my last year of, of high school, we went on a retreat to Gethsemane, Kentucky, and they had one bad thing about that retreat was there was a layover, I think it was in Louisville, and he had three hours. The bus into town, we had three hours to catch a plane back to Cleveland. And uh, we went off and went bar hopping. And, uh, well, the next day at school, we were back up there, and I'm sitting at my desk, and you can smell me three rows away, and the headmaster sends for me. And they gave me, they read me the riot act and sent me home. And uh, that was just the beginning of my trouble with booze. All the trouble I had in my life really was related to alcohol. But I didn't know it then, because... In our family, you learn to drink like a gentleman, and that was my ambition in life. I didn't realize that we didn't have any gentleman drinkers in our family, but they all thought they were. And, uh, you know, the standards went down. There was no drinking before five, but they didn't say which five, so it really didn't matter much. It's, uh, I, I did get out of high school, though. They let me back in and graduated me, and I went on to college. And I uh, went to Georgetown University in D.C. The next brush I had with, with trouble with alcohol, other than the usual hangovers, and uh, every time it seemed at the end of the summer, I'd, I'd, I'd work every summer and drink every summer. It was a seven-day drunk. And, but you didn't start drinking until five, because that's the way I was taught, really. This is God's truth. My mother was a drunk. But she never drank on the job. She was a school teacher, well-respected and retired honorably. But she never drank before five. I never drank before five. And that was to continue on up until I had a brush with AA. And I learned that the morning drink will take away those jitters. You know, the pros taught me. that. Uh, <laughs> I got I got into college and I did well because I just drank on the weekends and it was in our family you had to do your job that was the way we, it was just done that way I came from a good German family and they said you know I don't care what you drink or what you do when you drink but by gosh you got a job to do and you do it and my job was to get through school unlimited funds I had to do it and had to do it right the first time and I knew it I knew I didn't get a second chance so I really worked at it just drank on Friday and Saturday sometimes Sunday. And, you know, it was funny, even at age 18 or 19, I'd be hung over until about Wednesday. And I didn't ever associate this. I knew it was the booze, but I didn't think, I thought that was the price you paid. 
I uh, I had acquired a motorcycle and uh, I was leaving the Barry Goldwater defeat party at the Young Republicans Club. <laughs> and I never got off the parking lot. I blacked out. I don't know what happened, but about a month later, I woke up in the hospital, and they they told me I'd had an auto or a motorcycle accident, and I didn't know that. I was just there and looked over, and there's a nurse there, and I've got tubes sticking out all over me, and I said, "What's wrong?" I didn't feel any pain, and they described what had happened to me. The upshot was that I'd, I'd broken my entire body, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was to spend three months there. After the first month, they just had me laying in a bed. I woke up. I kind of remember Thanksgiving that year, but not too well. And I conned the night nurse. They had round-the-clock nurses on me. They didn't have ACUs at that point. They didn't have a critical care unit at the hospital. And I, I conned her into going down to the kitchen to get me something to eat because I was hungry. Really what I wanted was to, I hated that bedpan. I was going to slip out of bed and run down to the jar. They told me my back was broken, but I didn't believe them because I just wasn't hurting that much. <laughs> but she got out and I got out. And they uh, picked me up and, <laughs> you know, your legs don't work too well when your back's broken. But they put me in bed and put me in a cast from my neck to my knees. And, I, you know, it's funny, but I didn't have any trouble getting booze for the next 60 days. I had them bring my booze over from my room. And my sister used to keep beer in the window well at the hospital. And I'm sitting there and with a with three ounces of whiskey sitting on my chest. And the cops came in to ask me what had happened. And I didn't know. I didn't know that was, you know. I didn't know I was in a blackout. I was just going, by the way, I was going out to the local bar to get a few more beers to kind of cap off the defeat. Well... <laughs> I, I got out of that, you know, I lived, I came home, and I used that as an excuse for a long time because I was in pretty bad shape. I, walk, I could barely walk, I had to walk with a limp, and I still wear a lift today and a back brace. I have to when I, I do a lot of sitting. But uh, I could hear back in the kitchen, I'm laying in the front couch recuperating. In our house, we had a lot of beer. I used a lot of, of that stuff for recuperation. And... Uh, they said, isn't he drinking an awful lot? I could hear this out of, you know, three rooms away. My aunt or something's talking to my parents. And says, yeah, but he's in a lot of pain. I said, yeah, you're right. I'm in a lot of pain. And I, I was to use that to do an awful, awful lot of drinking that summer and into the next year. I got back into school, and I did well. I did, I did get back to my studies, and I completed most of my requirements in three years, and I applied to a Ohio State Dental School, and they accepted me, and I got an acceptance letter in, in February of that year. I got that letter, and I was to disappear for the next month, out just celebrating. And I, I kind of came to, you know, you had these moments of sanity. You get back, and I read the bottom of that letter, and it said, upon successful completion of this year. I thought, oh, damn. So I just kind of folded it up, put the jug away, and quit drinking. I could always quit if I had to.
I read those 12 questions all the time in the newspapers. I'm an avid reader. You know, there's another one of those 12 questions again. And I'd take that test. I'd get to the end of it, and I'd go back over and, yeah, obviously, no, no, maybe, no, no, no. Because, you know, the standards were kind of low. If you answered three of these, definitely you're an alcoholic. I usually had eight or nine. And I'd go back and say, that couldn't be, not me. I can quit any time I want. So I got back into into studying at school, put the plug in the jug, finished a year, got out, went to Ohio State, and uh, started dental school up there. And professional schools a 40-hour week, and then you do your homework afterwards. And I did well the first year. I managed to get a beer tap installed in our dental frat. It's... Uh, <laughs> I still didn't have much money, and, you know, 15-cent drafts are a lot cheaper than the stuff down at the local uh, bar. And uh, I did all right that first year. I can I can remember a lot of Mondays being awfully hungover and sick a lot, but I'd, I'd always make it 8 o'clock classes. I never missed a day's class. I was always there. And obviously that, you know, I'm, the booze is bugging me a little bit at this time. I got through that school in uh, about three years, finished most of my requirements. In the meantime, I got married, and uh, of course, set up house and all this stuff, and things were okay. Our wife, my wife and I were in love, and things were all right. We didn't have much money, and she was making 4000 a year, and we were just we were doing all right, but I still found money to drink on some. Not too much. I can still remember in my senior year, the fourth year, I'd gotten most of my requirements taken care of and was doing well in school. Even though I was drinking on weekends, there were a few brawls around the frat house that I couldn't explain to you. My wife can tell you a lot more about this than I can. And uh, uh, my senior year up there, well, my alcoholism got worse again. It would kind of blossom, and then I'd, I'd, I'd get to a limit. I'd get to where I knew I was getting in trouble, and I'd put the plug in the jug and back off. Well, this this year, I'd, I'd gotten all the requirements out of the way, and I can still remember that Christmas. I bought her a bottle of Chivas Regal for Christmas. And that was her bottle. She's a social drinker. She'd still have that bottle today. But I was to spend the next four months refilling that thing out of those four-fifths pint jobs that you buy at the liquor store. I knew I couldn't slip any old tennis shoe in on her. And uh, so that that's the way I was. I was already sneaking. I was already hiding. I was already conning. I got out of Ohio State, and I've got a picture today. It's lovely. I weighed 200 and some pounds, and there's my graduation picture with the mortar board and the colors on, the doctoral purple, and there's this guy with a moon-shaped face. He's got the beer bloat. You know what that looks like. It's not fat. It's kind of, you swell up. And uh, <laughs> and two two eyes that are just lost, you know. <laughs> I can I can remember taking the state boards. It was just lovely. I took a 
I took about a, a half a fifth of Bellows Club bourbon each night before the state boards. I must have smelled awful. You go nose to nose with the examiners, and they're looking at you, and they're, you're looking back. And I'm, I, I don't know how, you know. I did my job. That's the, way, the only thing I can figure, and I did it well. So they passed me, and I got out. I, I now are a doctor, you know. <laughs> I, I, I went, <laughs> then we moved, you know. All these changes are, are just, I was a geographic drunk. I never stayed in one place very long. So I got down to Cincinnati, and, and uh, we set up, uh, moved into an apartment down there, and uh, went to work for the Board of Health, the city of Cincinnati, running a dental clinic in one of the schools down there. I showed up at work. I was there every day. Towards the spring of that year, the superintendent of the uh, clinics came down to see me. It seems I was absent. Uh, they had, when you hit number seven, they'd send a guy down to talk to you, your seventh absence in a year. And all my absences were on Tuesdays. Because I knew if you took off Monday, they'd know. <laughs> it's, uh, and, and, and Ermel came down, and I think Ermel was a drunk too, because we, we went nose to nose, and I conned him, and he conned me, and we talked around, and I promised, and he promised, and, uh, I got out of that job with honorable discharge. Uh, <laughs> actually, I didn't reapply because I had a, my wife told me about this man that was selling a practice in the eastern end of Cincinnati, and I thought I'd give it a try. God was taking care of me. I don't know. My higher power was has been looking after me all my life. When I broke my back in that motorcycle accident, it broke off just below where the spinal cord comes out to the legs. And a half inch higher, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be walking. Funny things like that. Uh, it's Well, I, I got this practice, and I... Paid the man his money, or took out a loan, re-signed a 90-day notes every 90 days down to sign the note again, and uh, became a rich and successful dentist in the eastern end of Cincinnati. Basically, what I did for the next four months was was pretty well, uh, I set on the path of destroying a practice that man, man had spent 20 years building up. It's... Uh, <laughs> Oh, but I made some money doing it. This is, <laughs> I, I can still remember that year, and <laughs> my, my alcoholism was not that bad yet, I thought. I was just drinking a little every evening, found a place that would deliver beer to my apartment. That was really living, and for the first time in my life, I had some money. Because that Christmas, we went across the river to uh, Newport and Covington, and the liquor is cheaper in Kentucky. And at Harris Rosedale's liquor shop, they had a discount. If you bought a case, you got 20% off. And it's just, you know, I went over there, and we bought our mixed case, put it in the back of that 67 Volkswagen, came back. I felt like a, we came back across the river. And it was, the feeling I had that day was looking in the back, you know, it's back there. It's just, it was just like a, you know, a, a, a couple coming home from the hospital with a new baby. It was, 
I never had that much booze at one time in my life. I'm a pint man, maybe a fifth, or, you know, a six-pack of beer. And uh, we're back over, and we installed that in the pantry of our, our apartment. And I proceeded to drink that. Within, by February of that year, it was all gone, plus what I'd bought to replace it and the beer I drunk on top of it, and I'm hiding this from my wife, and things are getting funny around home. There's a... She's not talking to me some mornings, and I don't know why. And we had this... Somebody gave us a little tea tray for a wedding present. One of these things that sits there, and it has a little teapot and a creamer and a sugar job on it. And I never liked that for some reason. This, you know... I, you know, I'm, I'm a pra- I'm a guy that's real practical, and I like things that work and are functional, and you know. But a tea set, who drinks tea? And especially, are you never going to put it in that thing anyhow? Because, it... well, one morning or one day, I kind of looked at it, and it was sitting funny on the table. It had just been kind of mangled. It, <laughs> but I don't know what happened to it. Another, and we lived on a third floor apartment and it had a little back porch out on the main street there. And my wife, I came out one day and I said, what happened to the lock on that thing? And she kind of looked at me like, uh, well, uh, said, uh, last night about, oh, 11 o'clock or 12, you got up to go to the john and you turn left instead of right. And the door was locked and so you just ripped it open. I guess I took a leak in public out there. I, <laughs> it This is all that year. I don't you know, I'm not planning any of this. I didn't I didn't understand exactly what was going on. My my mother-in-law is looking at me funny, but that's all right. Well, in this in this month of January, I kept drinking and drinking, and I was getting re- really sick. The shakes were setting in. It was getting pretty bad in the morning. I'd go to work, and my whole body would be just vibrating. And I wouldn't take that morning drink, because I knew if I took that drink, this was not vocalized at that time. I never really faced it. But I really knew inside that if I took that drink, it would be an admission that I was hooked to that stuff. I didn't want to. So I'd go to work and I'd tough it out till 5 o'clock, drinking water all day. I drank a lot of water at work. I was always thirsty. My nose would run. My eyes would water. My stomach was upset. I had sinus trouble. (laughs) Actually, what I was, I was an alcohol junkie just coming down, you know. It was just... I was withdrawn every morning. I didn't recognize the symptoms. I didn't hang around with people that did that. And, uh, gosh, uh, well, it got worse rapidly. Something happened. I get pretty foggy in this part. You'd have to listen to my wife's lead to understand a little more. She tells a different story. Uh, but I, 
I, I had a, I took Wednesday afternoons off and Thursdays. And I came home Wednesday and I wanted a drink. And by this time, I'm a bourbon lover. I love bourbon. The stuff smells today and I love it. I, you know, across the room, I just love the smell of bourbon. By this time, though, I was down to vodka. And, uh, that, that'll put a warning on vodka. This stuff is for alcoholics, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had trouble with this sinus problem I had. I went to the doctor. I got a, I had a sinus infection. Sure. I was sick all over. And uh, I had, uh, had this sinus infection. I had pleurisy. I had a lot of things going wrong. I blamed a lot of it on the auto accident, on the motorcycle accident. When I'd go to sleep at night about 9 o'clock, or I'd go to bed about 10 or 10.30, I don't know what time I went to bed, but I usually made it there. That's. But I'd just be dropping off to sleep, and all of a sudden I'd go into a seizure. I didn't recognize what it was at that time, but my knees would just jerk up. My whole body would just seize, and I'd wake up again. I, I was exhausted. I worked just dead tired for so long. You know what it's like. And then I'd start to sweat. And then I'd get, you know, all the covers off. And then I'd get chilled. And then put them back on. And then it sweats again. It finally got to the point where I just laid my own sweat. That was it. You know, I didn't even move anymore. But I wouldn't take a drink. Because I knew that if I took that drink, I'd become an alcoholic. I got home from from this Wednesday at the office, and uh, I had been to the physician for my uh, sinus. He had prescribed antihistamine and uh, antibiotic, and of course, with the admonition, do not take, don't drink. Oh, of course, I won't drink. And uh, of course, I did. That day, I had two two drinks, I think it was, and went into a blackout. And my blackout at this time, I'm not a, I'm not a dramatic blackout drinker. I don't end up in Tijuana or, you know. It was my blackout at this time. I, you know, I'd go out on the back porch and take a leak. Nothing. It's... I went I went into this blackout this time. We were having these fights around the house. I don't know how they'd start. They were usually my wife's fault. And uh I was I was in a lot of pain. I didn't know it, but I went into this blackout and somehow I came out of it and I was in an argument with her. And then I'd go into the blackout again. It was like in this room if if the lights would go off. And we'd all get up and move around. Then they'd go back on again. Then they go, I could come out of a blackout going across the room and go back into it again. They were like that. I came to in an argument with her, and a little bit later I got kind of uh, violent. I was a violent drunk. Had a pistol in the house. I had, my paranoia was getting pretty bad by this time. I'd acquired a 32 pistol. You know, it's a lady's gun. Thank God I didn't. <laughs> I stole it, by the way. And... Uh, <laughs> Because I, I was pretty sick, and I, you know, I, I wanted, I was in, in a lot of pain. 
I wanted something to happen. I wanted something to change. I threatened her with it. I had to blow your brains out, you know, and then I threatened me with it. And then I don't know what happened after that. And then she was gone again, and I came back too. I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> Have you ever had the feeling the cops are around the next billboard? Well, I said, they're out there, and I walked out, and sure enough, there was a big blue wagon down there, and there was a knock on the door, and my wife said, Jim, are you in there? I said, yeah, I'm here. She said, I got a policeman with me. I said, I know. She said, where's the gun? I said, it's on the table. It's okay. I said, do you mind if he comes in? And he said, no. We lived in an old apartment with these great big doors, and uh, this door opened. <laughs> this guy in blue just filled it. <laughs> He said, how are you? You know. <laughs> oh, just fine. Uh, I had a moment of sanity here. I, there was a back door to that apartment. I almost ran, and I thank my God today that I didn't. And he said, do you want to come with me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> right then, the stretcher came around the, t the door. We lived on the third floor. It was a walk-up. And his little red-headed sidekick brought the stretcher in, and he said, Get on. And hanging on to the last shred of alcoholic dignity, I said, gee, I'd rather walk out myself. He said, get on, yes, sir. <laughs> they, they strapped me on that thing and hauled me down those steps. And as we went out the front door, there stood my father-in-law, a more beautiful man I've, I haven't met. He was a lovely man. I loved him a lot. Very, he was non-judgmental. He was a real Christian. He, he lived these 12 steps without ever having read them. And he just sitting there like this. He was about 6'3 or 6'4. I went by and I told him everything, you know, what he could do with everything he owned or hoped to own. <laughs> with, with descriptions on where to store it and everything else. They threw me in the back of that wagon and took me over to the local general hospital, Cincinnati General, which is a great big thing. And a lot of, they've got an emergency room. They're kind of used to drunks. It was a busy night. And they had me out in the hallway. Now, I don't remember any of this. I know I was there because I had to go back and get my shoes a month or two later. <laughs> and my wife tells me that, that uh, anybody that would come na even near me, I'd curse them out and swear and cuss and scream and do all this stuff. And the next thing I remember, I was being unloaded from this wagon in the strap still in the back end of Emerson North, uh, Cincinnati Mental Health Institute. And they were they got me out of there and stood me up and put me in a straitjacket and threw me in a locked ward 
strap me to the bed. Uh, I was scared to death, and I was angry. I'm the, I don't like confinement. I really don't. It frightened me. It frightened me then. Today I'm better. But they, they had me strapped down there, and I was angry. I was mad at my wife, my job, Uncle Sam, my in-laws. I was mad at all those sons of bitches that had put me there. After about three days, they, they did let me go to the bathroom by myself and feed myself. They would take the straps off for that. But they, they let me out into the regular ward with the regular crazy people. <laughs> I'm coming up in the world, you know. <laughs> and I still had this anger. And I sat there and, and it was just, there was no treatment there for alcoholism. But they did keep you where you belonged. It's uh, And there were four other drunks on this unit with me, alcoholics. And this one guy, a truck driver, I, I, I kind of knew I didn't belong there. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. But over about ten days, I started finally easing down and saying, you know, just maybe, just maybe that alcohol had something to do with it. And about this time, this guy comes over, Barry, he says, hey, there's an AA meeting in the next building Tuesday night. Do you want to go? Of course I want to go. That's how I can get off of this floor. They wouldn't let me off otherwise. I'll go over to the AA meeting. And I thought, well, maybe that's it, you know. Just, it might be. But I didn't want it to be. Boy, I didn't want it to be. So Tuesday night came. We went down to the meeting. And they had Jelnick's Curve there. You know, the progression from social drinking to death and sanity. All the stages, loss of friends, time off from work. Uh, deteriorating family relationships, uh, changing jobs, all this stuff. And I'm going down this list, and I'm picking about one out of two. And, you know, it's it's starting to sink in like, God, I can diagnose stuff if I know what it is. <laughs> and about three steps from the bottom, you know, there's death, insanity, or incarceration down at the bottom of that thing before the curve goes up again. About three steps back up, there it is. Voluntary or involuntary commitment to asylum. <laughs> I was there, you know. From that first AA meeting, I knew I was an alcoholic. After a couple more weeks, they let me out of the hospital. Uh, I was diagnosed uh, as having an anxiety attack or something like this. I wasn't an alcoholic. I told I told a psychiatrist, God bless him, he's probably out there still doing whatever he's doing, but I said, look at this, you know, I'm drinking a lot. I told him the truth about how much I was drinking. And he said, nah, it couldn't be. But that's okay. I I got out of there... Because at this AA meeting, these, these white-haired gentlemen were there, and I was 27 years old, and I was a doctor, and I was too young to be an alcoholic, and all this stuff, and this, these, these white-haired goofballs were running around. <laughs> this one guy was a defrock podiatrist. He'd been running... <laughs> He'd been run out of Cleveland. Uh, uh, it, well, that's his story. There was something to do with about working above the feet. 
and this this guy and his sidekick Bob would come around and tell me these outrageous stories. He'd say, "Would you like to go to a meeting?" And I got out and I kind of knew about AA. And he gave me a big book and I read the thing. And I'm a fa- I was a fast reader, as, as I could read a lot of words. I'll put it that way. And uh, it was about a year of uh, in and out, in and out, in and out. They'd call me every Wednesday night. They knew my day off was Wednesday afternoon and Thursday, so every Wednesday I'd get a phone call from Gene or Bob. Hi, Jim, how you doing? You want to go to a meeting? Nah, Bob, I can't. I'm too busy. got to stay home with the wife. got to do this. Or I'd go. And I went to these meetings, and, and I'd hear these awful, awful horror stories. A guy living in a box out back of Churchill Downs, you know. <laughs> Prison. Uh, murder, you know. Jobs lost, families lost, wives lost, just terrible stuff. And, and I hadn't done any of that. You know, I just had a little trouble with drinking, you know. I I was successful. I had a degree. There it was. When Ohio State gave me that degree, a DDS, they didn't know it was drunken dental surgeon. <laughs> And I just couldn't identify the guy that drove the bakery truck, you know. He'd tell me his story, and I couldn't identify. But they kept calling me up, and they were happy to see me all the time. And I'd sit around these tables, and since I'd read the big book and digested it, you know, kind of one of these deals, you just page through it, zip. Evelyn Wood, speed reading. I got through the thing in about two days and uh, didn't have to read it after that. They, I was lonely. My wife was having trouble. She had gotten to Al-Anon, by the way, because uh, when I was in the hospital, it turns out that a, the, my insurance man was a uh, patient of mine. And uh, to get coverage, you know, she had to call Jack, and she goes, Jack, uh, or uh, Jim's in the hospital, and we got a we got to get a claim. And he said, oh, that's, uh, what, that's too bad. What happened? Oh, well, uh, or, uh, where is he? Uh, or, uh, gee, uh, uh, Noni, where is he? we got to know where to send the claim for him. She said, oh, he's over at Emerson North. And Jack said, I know why he's there. Because Jack was an alcoholic, and he drank just like me, only he was recovering, you know. <laughs> His wife got a hold of my wife, and that was the beginning of the beginning. <laughs> well... I'd go to these meetings and these people would talk to me and they, they, they considered, you know, this doctor there, they thought, I thought I was, I could really add some class to this outfit. <laughs> and I'd, I'd have to take a little nip now and then to go to the meetings and I, I went to AA meetings drunk and I went to them sober and, or dry, excuse me, I went to them dry and I went to them drunk and these people are always happy to see me. And a guy sitting next to me at this one group I went to, 12 people, scared to death. I went to the Oak Street Center, and there must have been 40 or 50 people, you know, that I didn't know. And some of them smelled bad, and it scared me to death. I was terrified of people. So this guy sitting next to me said, let's try this little meeting. I think you need that. He took me out there. And these people loved me for a long time. I kept coming back. I didn't make it all the time. And then I got a Christmas card from one of them. You don't know how much that meant to me. 
just to get a Christmas card from this old gentleman at this group. I thought that was just fantastic because I wasn't feeling too good. I was drinking, trying not to drink, promising. In the meantime, during one of my dry periods, uh, I think my wife got pregnant. And uh, she kept getting bigger and bigger. I do remember this. <laughs> but I commit... I, I didn't know when I, you know, I'd start drinking. I didn't know when I'd stop. You know that story. And I decided I'm going to have to quit. It was Sunday. She was about nine months pregnant, and it's getting close. So Sunday I quit drinking, and by Wednesday I was well enough to go to the hospital and watch my first child be born. That was good. That next year in 1974, I, I was going to have a good old-fashioned Fourth of July. I'd been dry for about six, eight, ten weeks. I don't know. I'm probably lying right there, but I thought maybe <laughs> I th- I thought maybe you know I could just have buy a six pack. Fourth of July was on a Thursday; it was my day off. I could just buy a six pack and have an old-fashioned Fourth of July with hot dogs and hamburgers in the backyard. And I bought that six pack. And uh, Sunday, I kind of lost a little time there. I woke up Sunday morning, and I knew it was over. You know, that, that clarity of a, of a Sunday morning, and you're just so hungover and sick, and I knew it was over, and I walked down the front steps of this house we'd bought in the meantime. I'm sitting on the front steps, and I'm crying, because I know it's over. I said, God, I need help. And she said, you want me to call somebody? I said, call Dick W. And Dick picked up the phone. I said, Dick, I need help. I'll go anywhere. You know, I'll even go back to Emerson North. And he said, I knew you were sick when you said that. (laughs) So he came down and got me, and they took me up to Batesville, and I spent two weeks in an AA drying out place. AA meetings three times, two or three times a day. Big book, that's it. No TV, no radio, no newspapers. And I, I got to, I got a beginning there. I was drunk a week after I got out of there. And spent five days at a local half or residence home for men down in the bottoms of Cincinnati, $35 a week. And, uh, because they took alcoholics. And I couldn't go back to Batesville. They wouldn't allow you back for six months. And, uh, at the end of that uh, time, I got out of there, and I decided that this has got to stop. We had a vacation planned in September. I figured I might as well take it. You know, things are not too good around the office right now. I'm not working a lot. i got to thank my higher power for one thing. When he, when he gave me the shakes, I would shake all over. But if I could get the heel of my hand down, my fingers didn't tremble. And I was all right in the office. It was... <laughs> I had to sneak up behind the patients with that Novocaine meal. <laughs> well, I, I went on vacation with my wife, sent her down ahead of me. She went down to North Carolina on the Outer Banks, and got a, my mother had a cottage down there. And uh, she got down there. I came down a week later. I'm trying not to drink. Before, I could always quit any time I had to. I'm trying not to drink at this time, but I couldn't. 
I figured I'd get down there and I could stop. I could get down there and just lay back. No pressure. I could stop. I got down there, lasted about two days, started going to withdrawal. I was in withdrawal and started getting close to the DTs. Something was wrong. I knew it. Had to run down and buy liquor. I bought a, I was buying it by the half a gallon. Now, I wasn't kidding myself. I knew that I was an addict, total. But I didn't want to drink. I wanted, I wanted to quit so badly. I couldn't stop. I'd been running around AA for, for a year and a half now. I knew what the steps said. I knew what the big book said. I read it. I talked to these people. I knew all this stuff. They used to ask me, when are you going to do your fourth step? And I thought I had. I thought I, you know, I thought I'd done a fourth step by sitting around coffee tables after meetings and bullshitting, telling war stories. I thought that was a fourth step. Well, you know, it was in Batesville that, that this part of the big book jumped out at me. This story doesn't really hold together too well, but I was sitting there. My higher power sends things to me when I'm, I'm able to receive them. And I was reading the big book again, the third or fourth or fifth time, and then from Freedom from Bondage, this woman was talks about her recovery. Finally, in desperation, my family appealed to a doctor for advice, and he suggested AA. The people who came knew immediately I was in no condition to absorb anything of the program, and I was put in a sanitarium to be defogged so that I could make a sober decision about this for myself. It was here that I realized for the first time that, as a practicing alcoholic, I had no rights. Society can do anything it chooses to do with me when I am drunk, for I forfeit, and, and I can't lift the finger to stop it, for I forfeit my rights through the simple expedient of becoming a menace to myself and to the people around me. And I was there. I was a menace. It was down in North Carolina. I was trying to quit. A guy named Frank came around and took me to meetings. He and his wife were there all the time. They'd come and take me to meetings drunk and drunk and drunk because I never sobered up that two weeks. And finally, we were cleaning up to go home. My wife's got my newborn child with us. And I'm in the bottom of the refrigerator cleaning it out because we had to clean the cottage up before we left. And she said something to me. I don't know what it is to this day. You see, I'm a wife beater too, but I don't remember ever doing it except this once. My God, let me remember this one. As she said something to me, I'm down on my knees, and I looked at her, and I swung. And I can remember that to this day, the fist coming like that and around, and I knew that it was wrong, but I couldn't stop it. Bam! She was out of there, had her bag packed, baby over her arm, down the driveway, hitchhiking down the road in about 30 seconds. Al-Anon had done its job well. Without Al-Anon, I wouldn't be here. For I forfeit my rights through the simple expedient of becoming a menace to myself and to those around me. I remember that one. She got back to Cincinnati. Frank came down later that day and talked to me. And I went to his house and gave him the last half a gallon that I had. And he sent me on the road to Cincinnati with his admonition. He said, look, you son of a bitch. He said, I got kids on that road coming this way. If you're going to 
drink. I'd rather you did it with a 30, kill yourself with a 38. And he said, I love you. Goodbye. And I went back to Cincinnati. My wife's over at the in-laws. I'm in this house alone. I'm, I don't know what to do. I can't go to work. I'm withdrawn. I'm shaking. I'm sweating. So finally, I got enough guts up to call her up. And I called her up and we talked. She said, look, I love you drunk or sober, but I won't live with you drunk. I said, I understand. I went over to pick her up. Had to buy a pint to do it. Got back. Picked her up. Got back to my house and had to take a week off just to quit shaking. It was during this week that I had my first spiritual experience. It doesn't mean that much. Except I walked into the Oak Street Center and I looked around and the regulars were there. The Oak Street Center is the AA Center in Cincinnati. And I'm sitting there and I'm fighting this. I said, I just looked around. I was in, just in the pits and I... Saw these five guys over there that are always there. And I said, I guess I'm going to be with these people for the rest of my life. And with that, a great weight lifted off my back. I don't know what it was, but I remember that. I'd like to say I didn't drink anymore after that, but I can't. But 90 days later, 90 days of 90 meetings, I'm finally doing what they're telling me to do. I'm finally doing it. I'm happy. I'm getting better. We had Christmas, my first sober Christmas in 14 years. And the day after Christmas, there was some kind of thing we had to go to at my wife's friends. I got angry. And I took one drink at 6 that night. At 10 that night, I took my second drink. At 1 that morning, I came out of a blackout. Just at the right time. I'd been at that party for three hours and nobody knew it but me and my wife, that I was in a blackout. I was to spend three or four more days drinking. I did a lot of funny things when I was drinking. I finished a knife rack in my basement during that time. I don't know how I did it. But when I got back from this next hospital, there it was. And my wife doesn't do woodwork. So <laughs> and there was a fifth, uh, empty fifth of rum up on the workbench there. But She was gone again, and she called the police again, and this same policeman answered the phone. He's on the desk now. He said, oh, my God, did you used to live at 25, you know? (laughs) She said, yeah, oh, my God, you know? (laughs) But but Monday morning, she was gone with the kids to the in-laws, and and this phone rang Monday morning, 7 o'clock. Chick said, Jim, how you feeling? I said, not too good. He said, I got your wife and baby, they're okay. So he said, you want to go to the hospital? And he took me to a place in Indianapolis called Fairbanks. It was there that I had a second experience that was was just great. It's, it was there that I finally took my fourth and my fifth step. I was sitting there. I'd gotten out of detox. I was semi-normal again, and I'd, I'd come back over to the detox side for some reason, and they hauled a guy named Ben Quick out. Ben was my age, wife, family, job, the whole bit. He's dead. He died right there. It never had occurred to me that these people were telling me the truth. It was fatal. Ben died for me. I think of him now and then. And I thank God that I'm alive. I got home. 
I took my fourth and my fifth step, and from that day on, I have not really had a desire to drink. That's the way it happened to me. I'd like to say that's the end of the story, but it's not, because I got sober, and I got happy, and I got active in the program. And I went to conferences, and I really got feeling good, and that practice is starting to come back again. I'm starting to work full days now. It's, uh, you know, I lost about, you know, I ran that practice into the ground, and uh, people are coming back, they're trusting me again. My mother-in-law is talking to me. That's not that great, but it's a, it's a sign, you know. And that's, I got a good summer and a good fall and a good winter, and then that spring, I, I, I'm a dentist. I had nitrous oxide or laughing gas in my office. And I thought, after a hard day at the office, just a little toot, you know. (laughs) And over the next six or eight months, I'm not sure what, I went through the same addiction pattern that I did with alcohol. First it was for fun, and then it became a habit, and then I became addicted. Now, the pharmacology men will tell you it's not addictive, but they don't know. And I bottomed out, and my wife and the people in AA were talking to me. You know, the, the old guy at the round table, they used to come up and when I was drinking and hold me close and stick their nose in my face and say, Have you been drinking today, Jim? And I'd, I'd answer them honestly, and they say, well, that's okay, just keep coming back. They were doing it again. You've been drinking again, and they couldn't smell anything. But I was, I was acting funny, you know? And my wife is noticing, and she is in Al-Anon, and she knows what she can do and what she can't do. And in September, she said, hey, you know, I think maybe you might have a problem. Would you want to go to a hospital? And I couldn't talk to anybody about it. I was in the middle of addiction, and I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't talk to these people because I I was really locked in. I didn't know how to get out of this. And the addiction became deeper and deeper, and I'm spending time in my office at night. You know, there's no there's no such thing as a social nitrous sniffer. It's, Well, first, it got worse very quickly, and, and that Christmas I was sick, and I missed New Year's Eve party. My wife went to the New Year's Eve party without me. It was all AA people. They said, where is he? Who knows? And he's at his office. What's he doing? I don't know. Probably sniffing gas. People from AA had come out. Old Dewey, Dewey's still drunk, but I can, he'd, he'd look in the front window at my office. He and my Gene would come out and they'd look in the window and they'd beat on the window and try to get me out of there. I finally, I finally bottomed out. It finally gets to the point where if you're a drinker, you know what I'm talking about when you, 
You, you've drunk so much that the more you drink, the soberer and the clearer things get. And I came to in the morning. I'd started this nitrous too to like a Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday afternoon. And it was, no, it was, wait a minute, hold it. It was Monday night. I started Monday night. It went through Tuesday and on into Wednesday morning. And uh, I came to and I was scared to death. The paranoia, the fear was awful. I was crouched in the corner of my office. I was scared the phone would ring. I thought the world had ended. I was in just screaming pain and agony and afraid to call and afraid the phone. And I would just, you know, I, I thought they dropped a nuclear bomb. And that wasn't funny. I really thought something like that had happened. It had snowed the night before and it was about this high. It was the worst snow we'd had in a long time. And my wife finally got a hold of me. And I thought I'd done enough brain damage that this was the end, folks. They got me out of that office and onto a plane to Hazelden for treatment. And as I was walking out of the office, grabbed my kids' pictures because I didn't think I was coming back. I just took them with me. I stuck them in my shirt. And I got on that plane and, and, and went up there. And it was the worst winter in a hundred years. Sixty below. Wow. You know, <laughs> what am I doing here? I knew, I don't know why I was sent there, but they did me a lot of good. They told me that AA was the answer. They said, quit intellectualizing this thing. This isn't a mind game. It's not something you think about. It's something you do. Go back to AA. Get better. Don't take any pills. Don't do any of this stuff. And I did that. My first year off of alcohol was a real honeymoon. It was just lovely. My second first year off of the nitrous was not so neat. I went through a year-long depression. Not exactly, because I would go up and down. I was in a lot of emotional pain. <laughs> I got hit with a lawsuit that July that went on for four years. My mother died. My father-in-law died. We had a, I think another baby. I don't know. I got four kids now. I didn't have any when I got to the program. And they'll, you know, you can ask these endocrinologists. They'll probably talk to you something about the testosterone level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's the way you smell. It's, This this first year out of uh, out of Hazelden, I really had to hang on to that sanity part, the second step. I had to believe that a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity because I was bananas. I was having uh, little flashbacks and hallucinations. I'd had this once before with alcohol. I didn't tell anybody anybody about it then because I didn't. You know, I thought they'd lock me up. And I didn't want to go back to those nut houses, so I just go to meetings and keep quiet and hang on. And uh, I went to the meetings and I got active and I got happy. And my wife's in Al-Anon, and you know our life today is like an AA and Al-Anon marriage. Is I can't think of anything better. I think it's just incredible. Our kids are happy. They're eight, six, three, and two. 
and they're really a pleasure to be with. My first child. I was a dangerous drunk with a diaper pin, I'll tell you. It's, and the screaming and the hollering that goes on today, I thank God that I'm sober because the noise sober is bad enough. Hung over would just be unbearable. <laughs> and we, we celebrate life together. And I take time with my kids and with my wife. People had to tell me how to socialize. I've had to learn how to do everything over again sober. I go on a fishing trip with a bunch of drunks. And we have a ball. There are anywhere from four to a dozen of us. And we go fishing down on the Outer Banks of North Carolina every fall. And it's just lovely. Go to meetings down there. We listen to tapes down there. We eat like hogs down there. It's sort of like here, you know. <laughs> AA has taught me to be joyous, happy, and free. Fritz and I were talking about it today, just a few minutes before the meeting. He was pumping me up for this talk. He didn't know that, but he was. And we were talking about tears of joy. I, I went to Ellery's First Holy Communion about a week ago. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this little kid and all these other little kids and the priest up there and they're talking about all this. And I'm crying, you know. I think it's great. It's just lovely. I could go to my father-in-law's funeral and grieve him, and I could see my mother die, and I could grieve her. And they're both in the ground now, well buried. And I love them both, still. I love the good memories. I don't have to bury them anymore. Mom died sober, thank God. That's another story. I had very little to do with that, but I was, was lucky to get to know her sober before she died. We have plans today to live a day at a time. My wife's a planner. I let her handle the money. Says, I make it, she spends it. <laughs> I'm not very good with it. You know, I stick it in my wallet and sit on it. I, it's, uh, and I, I enjoy my practice today. It's kind of funny, you know, uh, a drunken dentist, Doc Holliday, was the first of our long line of drunken dentists. <laughs> and I, I'm sober today, and I went down to the dental society and said, let's try and do something about this. And myself and a couple other guys are working on it. It's slow. They don't want to listen to this kind of noise about having alcoholic people, because there's still a problem with the uh, with the public image. I've gotten back to church. I quit going to church when I was 19. AA introduced me to God again. I never left him. I kind of ignored him for a while. And now I can go to church on Sunday or I cannot go to church on Sunday. I'm comfortable both ways. And when the priest is talking or the guy sitting next to me, the, the parish council, whatever, that's okay. He's entitled to his opinion. And I think it's lovely. With deep shame came the knowledge, too, that I had lived with no sense of social obligation, nor had I known the meaning of moral responsibility to my fellow man. That's the way I was. AA's taught me how to be a responsible and loving human being. They've taught me how to live. Thank you.